Father God, we come to you in the matchless name, the majestic name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, your beloved son. And we ask now, as we sit under the proclamation of your word, that you would incline our hearts Godward. That the busyness and all that's taking place during the Christmas season, the plans and the meals and everything that has to be prepared, Lord, can so easily distract from what this weekend truly is about. So we ask that you would drown out the noise. We ask that here and now our eyes would be opened, that we would behold the glory of our Savior. That our hearts would be united here as a family in Christ to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we work through your word here now, we would be satisfied with your steadfast love for your people. That you would lead us into truth. And that you would increase our capacity to worship you for all that you are as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I ask now that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, and that you, Holy Spirit, would take the proclaimed word and plant it deep within the hearts of your people, that they be conformed into the image of your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would take your copy of God's word and turn with me, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 this evening. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, brothers and sisters, Christmas is not at all about exchanging gifts. It's not about waking up, having cinnamon rolls, and then gathering for family dinners and making gingerbread houses. Those are fun things, but that's not what Christmas is centrally about. Christmas isn't even about some cute baby being born. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, speaking of Christmas, said this, quote, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. End quote. Christmas is about the incarnation of the Son of God. Christmas is about God the Son taking upon human flesh so that he could live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death so that you and I, by faith, could be reconciled to God the Father and be children of God once more. That's what Christmas is about. And I pray that that truth doesn't get lost in all of the good things 
that'll take place this evening and tomorrow. Rather, I pray that this is what would be preeminent in our hearts. To put it simply this way, the meaning of Christmas is that the promised Savior is born. So this evening, we're going to look at Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to see the the situation surrounding the birth of Jesus. We're going to briefly look at the expectations surrounding his birth as well. And then we're going to end looking at the meaning of the incarnation. So our three points will be the surrounding, the expectation, and the incarnation. So our first point, the situation. The story of the birth of Christ is probably the most well-known story in all of human history. And while that's a glorious thing to realize, what that also means is that you and I have to be very careful because it's easy then to read these seven verses and miss a very important truth about the situation surrounding his birth. And that is that God is absolutely sovereign. So as we look at these verses here and everything surrounding his birth, the sovereignty of God is at work in ways that are often missed. First, we see that God is sovereign over the people that are involved. It says, in those days, a decree went out. In the beginning of Luke chapter 1, we had seen a very similar phrase in verse 5. In those days, Herod, the king of Judea. Similar phrase. We're being told here the birth of Jesus happened as Herod is king, but he's king because God placed him as king. Now that's difficult, would have been difficult for a Jewish person to hear. Because the Jewish people were now living under a very oppressive and difficult occupation. They had rulers that were not friendly toward the Jewish people. And yet they are there by the appointment of God. So Caesar Augustus sends out this decree. Who is Caesar Augustus? He's regarded by many as probably the greatest Roman emperor to have ever lived. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. He took to power at the age of 19. He reigned for 58 years. It's said that he was the one who brought peace back to Rome. It was under Caesar Augustus that the term the Pax Romana came about. But his name wasn't even Caesar Augustus. These were titles. His name was Gaius Octavius. History would begin to call him shorthand Octavian. Interesting, Caesar Augustus, the word Caesar means emperor, and Augustus means the supreme one, the majestic one. So Jesus is coming into the world as this Roman man rules who views himself to be the great supreme one over the entire conquered world. And he sends out this decree, and it's also we hear about Quirinius as governor of Syria. That term governor doesn't mean governor the way we think now. It's a a term that's non-technical. It spoke that he was in a position of authority within the government somehow. It could have been administrative. Scholars believe that uh, he probably had held office at two different points. 
And so this decree goes out by these men to have a registry, a census. Well, that would happen for two reasons. One, for military enlistment. Or secondly, it'd be for taxation. But the Jewish men were exempt from being enlisted into the military. So we know that this census here, this registry is for tax purposes. And so this decree goes out, and the Roman Empire is pretty big, so it would have taken a long time for news to travel and the the actual registry to happen and then everything to get recorded and brought back to Rome. So this is a long process. These registries would typically happen every 14 years or so. It's easy to read that and think Caesar Augustus is just trying to get his money. He's just trying to to tax the people. But this is where it's really important to understand that our God is a sovereign God who reigns and rules over everyone and everything. Caesar is only in power, and he is only decreeing that this registry go forward because in the providence of God, this is how the birth of Christ would come about. Let us not forget Proverbs 21. Verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You see, God is setting the stage here in history for the birth of the Son of God. And so he moves within the heart. He moves the heart of Caesar Augustus to decree this. This decree, as we'll see, is what will bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. But before we get to the place, not only is God sovereign over rulers, he's sovereign over his people. So God sovereignly was the one who brought Joseph into Mary's life. He sovereignly brought this marriage together. Joseph and Mary are married now. It says betrothed in the the text. But she's traveling with him because they're married. It simply says betrothed because she's pregnant, so the marriage has not been consummated yet. And so they travel together, and in God's sovereignty, Joseph is the stepfather of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's his earthly father. And even though Joseph wasn't biologically the father of Jesus, adoptively he's his father, which means according to Jewish law, Jesus has a legal right to the inheritance, and that means that legally, according to Jewish law, it can be said that Jesus comes through the line of David because Joseph is from the line of David. Now, what's interesting is Mary didn't have to travel with Joseph during this time. She could have stayed back, but God is sovereign and God brings Mary with Joseph. Why? Joseph maybe just didn't want to leave her late in her pregnancy. He didn't want to be without her. He wanted to be there to care for her. Maybe he knew the rumors surrounding her her pregnancy. And he's like, I just don't want to risk me not being there to protect her. Whatever the reasons were, Mary travels with Joseph to Bethlehem. God has sovereignly brought father, mother, and child to this town. So let's talk about this town that he brought them to. They go to Bethlehem. It's about a 90-mile journey, which isn't a big deal for us, right? We can do 90 miles and 
get to Wisconsin or wherever we want to go in a car pretty quickly. But this 90-mile journey wouldn't have been that way for them. They would have traveled on foot. It would have been over difficult terrain. It would have taken three to four days. Imagine a woman late in pregnancy on a three or four-day journey, 90 miles. It was difficult. I could just imagine the fatigue, the tiredness, the worry. Joseph cares for her. They go to Bethlehem, which is called here in the text. In verse 4, the city of David. Remember, God made a promise to David. It's interesting because Jerusalem is usually what's referred to as the city of David. But Bethlehem is where David was born. You see that in 1 Samuel 16. Isn't it interesting that Israel's greatest king comes from Bethlehem, but now the even greater king is to be born in Bethlehem because Jesus is the greater David. So they go to the city of David. They go to Bethlehem, a small town, but it's a small town with a really big purpose. Because long ago through the prophet Micah, it was said that the Messiah would come and be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This is talking about the coming Messiah. Mary and Joseph are en route They arrive. The stage is set. Prophecies are being fulfilled. Again, God's sovereignty reigns. She didn't give birth on the journey on the way there. She didn't give premature birth in Nazareth. She gave birth in Bethlehem. And what's even more astounding is, in God's providence, the Romans allowed for Jewish custom to happen because typically if you're a Roman and there's a registry, you register from where you live. But according to Jewish custom, we see in Leviticus 25, the registries would happen from where the family has ancestral family line. And so there's an allowance here within the Roman uh, government for Jewish customs. Coincidence? No, sovereignty. So the stage is set. There's one more place he's sovereign over, though. He's sovereign over the manger. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. A feeding trough. Probably made of stone, hay put in it. We tend to think of a stable, but most likely what what this is, according to tradition, it was a cave that was carved out. And that's where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph would be with animals. It was a place for shelter. So the king of glory is born, not in a castle, but in a cave. All by God's sovereign decree. So the first point we see here, this is the situation. This is what's taking place. This is important for us to realize 
for a variety of reasons. One, this is important because it shows that our faith is a historical faith. It wasn't a guy in a basement who had a vision and then went and told everybody about it, and you can't verify any of it. This is a historical faith. It happens in real space and time. You can go look up Caesar Augustus. You can look up Quirinius. You can look up Herod. You can look up Tiberius, who we'll see soon. If history doesn't check out, the faith doesn't check out. But guess what? We're here 2,000 years later, and we're still standing. Because it is a historical faith. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's truth written into history. Our faith has stood the test of time because it really happened. It's kind of a cheesy thing you hear people say, but history is his story. And that's true. God is the one who writes history. Secondly, the story of Christmas here, well-known and well-loved. But how, how many times can we read over these seven verses and just not really meditate? Or we can read, Jesus is born, Christmas is here, he gets so moved, but there's a warning here for us. That we don't get swept up into the spirit of Christmas, rather than getting swept up into the savior of Christmas. Do you realize we can get, we can love the story more than who the story is about? Thirdly, in this first point, we see the word to trust God. Think of the faith that Joseph and Mary had, that God would care for Mary and bring her to Bethlehem. Not a very practical decision to make. I would have been very, I would have been struggling. I don't know. I think I'm going to leave her at Nazareth, not risk going and traveling the 90 miles, going through rocky, perilous terrain and something happening to my bride and my child. But no, he trusts. They recognize that God is sovereign. The God who is sovereignly ruling over kings and countries. The God who rules over spaces and places, over policies and economies. This is the God that we are to trust. We don't need to worry. We don't need to fear. We need to understand that God will always do what is best. He will always do what is for his glory and our good. Caesar Augustus can only do what God ordains for him to do. Think about it. Who would have ever imagined that the Son of God, the Savior, of, would be born in Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus had a registry that required Joseph to travel back to Bethlehem? That's exactly how God did it. You couldn't make these things up. If you're writing a story, you figure out some other way to get them there. God makes promises. God keeps promises. God sovereignly makes sure everything comes to pass. This is the situation that we're seeing here. Why does it all matter? Why would this matter to a Jewish man or woman? Which is our second point. There was an expectation. Why does it matter that he's born in Bethlehem? Why does he matter that he's born of a virgin? Why does it matter that he's from the line of David? Because God had made a series of promises throughout history. The first promise is found in the book of Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin has entered into the world. So we pick it up at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God would be just to stop right there. But he's not simply just. He's gracious. And so verse 15 is the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right in the beginning of God's story, there is a promise of a coming child. And this child will write what humanity has got wrong. Man's biggest problem will always be that he has sinned against a holy and righteous God. As a result, everybody comes into the world with a corrupt sin nature. Everybody comes into this world separated from God. Everybody comes into the world to face God's judgment. We are spiritually dead. We're born dead on arrival. But God has given a promise that there would be one that would come. And he would crush this great enemy that tempted Adam into sin. That the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. You can hear the whisper of the gospel there. It's pointing to this very event that we're talking about this evening, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has always been the plan of God to crush the one who separated us from God and reconcile us back to himself. And so the Bible teaches that the promise to Eve was that her offspring would destroy the serpent, bring us back to God, and that is fulfilled in our Savior. This is what Christmas is about. When Jesus is born, that promise of one that Eve would bear has been fulfilled. It's interesting. We think of Christmas in very sentimental terms. You think of all the love and joy and laughter. But it was actually a very dark moment in history. The book of Revelation actually tells us that the birth of Christ was the declaration of war against darkness and against the dragon. Revelation 12 talks of the woman and the dragon. 
Listen to what it says in uh, Revelation 12. Starting in verse 2. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. One is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God into his throne. That would happen. In Matthew's gospel, we read that when news of Jesus' birth comes, a decree is made that every child, every young boy under the age of two is to be killed. Christmas is beautiful, but there is a war that's ensuing here. God has entered into history and his son to undo the darkness, to bring in the light, to remove death and give life. And it begins with this promise to Eve being fulfilled. God also gives a promise to Abraham, a promise of offspring. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And you jump to chapter 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between you and me and your offspring after you throughout all generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The Jewish people assumed that promise of offspring to Abraham would be the Jewish nation. And in portion, that's true. But the apostle Paul actually tells us that this promise to Abram, Abraham was fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God gave to be a blessing to the nations, to have descendants as numerous in the stars, the Apostle Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was fulfilled in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised offspring which God spoke to Abram. And to say that he is the offspring, the seed of Abraham, is another way of saying that Jesus embodies Israel. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. That means that all those who by faith have trusted in Jesus are the offspring of Abraham by faith and inherit those promises. The promise to Abraham fulfilled in the birth of this child. 
There's another promise with another of another child, another offspring. God made a promise to David, King David. Second Samuel chapter seven. Verses 12 through 17. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be him to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's partially fulfilled when Solomon builds the temple. The discipline it speaks of is when Solomon falls into sin. But the promise that the throne of David will be established forever and ever and ever is fulfilled in the birth of Christ, who comes from the line of David. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the son of David who will rule. Do you see these promises of an offspring? A promise to Eve of an offspring. A promise to Abraham of an offspring. A promise to David as an, of an offspring. Not three separate children. These are all pointing to the same one. The Lord Jesus Christ, who as we read, is born and is sitting in a cave in a stone trough in obscurity. The prophet Isaiah, we read just moments ago, our call to worship, prophesied this very thing as well. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus is the light of the world. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel of the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The fulfillment of those things is here and now in Christ being born. He comes from David. He will rule over his people. He will be a wonderful counselor, meaning that he will be the perfect wisdom for God's people and he will guide them. He's called mighty God because he is the ruler, protector, leader, presider over his people. He's referred to as everlasting father because he will care for us. He will love us. He will provide and protect. 
And he's called the Prince of Peace because it is the Lord Jesus Christ who will bring peace between God and man. The great hope of Israel has been born in Bethlehem. This was the expectation of the Jewish people. This was what they had all the years had longed for. And yet here now, in the middle of Bethlehem, in the middle of nowhere, in the sun, in a cave, he's born. Not at all how you would think it would go down. Church, this, jo- this child born, the Lord Jesus, the one that fulfills the promises to Eve, Abram, Adam, the one who fulfills the prophecy spoken by Isaiah, he is truly the Savior of men. God made a promise. God kept his promise. And so I, I, I ask all of you, turn your eyes to the manger and see that the Savior is born. Turn your eyes to the manger and see that the Lamb of God who crushed would crush the head of the serpent has been born. See the one who would bring about forgiveness of sin is born. This is the meaning of Christmas, that the Savior is born. We've seen the situation surrounding the birth of Christ. We've seen the expectation of the birth of Christ. And our last point, the incarnation. This is one that we don't spend enough time on. Why did Jesus have to become man? Why couldn't Jesus just have stayed God and took care of the sin problem? Why did he have to be born as a babe and take upon flesh to be truly God and truly man? That could be a series of messages in itself. So I just want to offer four reasons for your consideration on this, this this Christmas season. The first reason that Jesus had to be truly man was so he could truly be our sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To propitiate, to satisfy God's justice. When Jesus died on the cross, he died really as a man, as a human being. And it's because he was truly man and truly died that he could truly be the substitute for those who placed their trust in him. If Jesus wasn't truly human, he could not have truly been our substitutionary sacrifice. As I said last week, there is no cross without a cradle. He had to be born as a man to atone for the sins of man. Secondly, he had to be truly man to be our mediator. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy 2, 5. 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It is because the Lord Jesus was born truly as a man, while also being truly God, that he is able to stand in that gap between us and God. God the Son stands in the gap between us and God the Father as the perfect, sinless, spotless one. He represents all who have placed their faith in him. And he can restore our relationship with our creator. Because he's truly man. Not only is he a not only is his humanity important for our, to be our sacrifice and our mediator, but also for our obedience. We tend to sometimes, I hear people say, well, of course Jesus never sinned. He's God. And while it's true that God can never sin, it is important to understand that Jesus was truly man. And truly in his humanity, never sinned. It wasn't like things got hard and he decided to dip into his deity powers. It was getting really hard. I got, I got to flip the God switch. That's not at all what happened. In his humanity, he fully depended upon the power of the Holy Spirit that indwelt him to perfectly fulfill the law of God, to perfectly love the Father, to perfectly accomplish the Father's will. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. This is at the heart of our faith. Then when we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, we see our sinful condition, we trust on his perfect life, his perfect obedience, the righteousness of Christ, the perfect obedience of Christ is imputed to us. Jesus faced trials and tribulations. Jesus was tempted. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never had desires that were sinful. Everything that Jesus Jesus thought, said, did, and desired was holy and free from the stain of sin. He is our obedience. We are saved by works, by the works of Christ. And he did it as a man, truly. He truly, therefore, did what we could. Just as Adam represented us in the garden, Jesus represents us on the cross. But in order for Jesus to represent us on the cross, he has to be truly man, which means he had to be born in the likeness of human flesh. And so he is. He's born truly God, truly man. I often think of that. Some people take issue with that. It's not fair. I don't want Jesus to represent me. Like, it doesn't seem right. Or some people take issue on the other side. I don't, I don't want Adam to represent me. We were represented by Adam in the garden, represented by Jesus on the cross. If you don't want Adam to be, if you have issue with Adam being your representative in the garden, you have to have issue with him being your representative on the cross. You can't just pick and choose what you want. This was God's plan. 
for the second Adam to be born to save sinners. Lastly, for our consideration, he had to be truly man to be our example. Listen to the way Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And you go over a couple of books to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus, in his humanity, his dependence upon the Holy Spirit, shows us and gives us an example of what a perfect life in submission to God looks like. His perfect example serves as a perfect model for us. And so we can look to the way he lived and seek to imitate our elder brother. So this Christmas Eve, as we look to the birth of Jesus and we read of him in a trough, in this cave perhaps, my question is, do you see your Savior, who is not only God, but man? Do you see the one who is born to die for your sin if you would only believe in him? Do you see the one who was born to stand before God and represent you as your mediator if you would believe in him? Do you see the one who's born to live the life that you couldn't so that his perfect obedience would be credited to you if you would believe in him? Do you see the one who was born to live a perfect life so that you have a model to follow after? If your answer is no this evening, I plead with you to repent of your sin and to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to see that the one who was born in Bethlehem, laying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths, not kingly garments, came to redeem you, if you would repent and believe in him. I plead with you to see that this child born in Bethlehem is the Savior. It can be said that the story of Christmas is that salvation is born. I want to close with a poem by Dr. D.A. Carson that he wrote as he meditated on the incarnation. Quote, Before there was a universe, before a star planet, when time had still not yet begun, I scarcely understand it. The eternal word was with his God, God's very self-expression. The eternal word was God himself, and God had planned redemption. The word became our flesh and blood, the stuff of his creation. The word was God, the word was flesh, astounding incarnation. But when he came to visit us, we did not recognize him. Although we owed him everything, we haughtily despised him. In days gone by, God showed himself in grace and truth to Moses. But in the word of God made flesh, their climax he discloses. For grace and truth and fullness came and showed the Father's glory. When Jesus donned our flesh and died, this is the gospel story. All who delighted in his name, all those who did receive him, all who by grace were born of God, 
all who in truth believed him. To them he gave a stunning right, becoming God's dear children. Here will I stay in grateful trust. Here will I fix my vision. Before there was a universe, before a star or planet, when time had still not yet begun, I scarcely understand it. The eternal word was with his God, God's very self-expression. The eternal word was God himself, and God had planned redemption. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this evening thanking you that you sent your son to take upon flesh so that sinful man could be reconciled to holy God. We thank you, Lord, that in your grace and kindness, you sought to save. And you sought to save in this way. We thank you, Lord, for our ability to gather here this evening and to just have our hearts meditating on this glorious truth. May this Christmas we not get caught up in the festivities and the love and the laughter of family, which is wonderful. But chiefly, may our hearts be taken up to the fact that you, God, have given the true gift of Christmas, your son, so that we can be reconciled to you. There is a day coming when Christ, you will return. You will gather your people. And then it can rightly be said, every day in eternity will be Christmas. We thank you, Jesus, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.